0: jane brown
1: libby is observing yom kippur nice to have you with me she will be back tomorrow ontario could soon have an energy crisis not during this year or next but by 2026 we've learned from an rbc report that we here in ontario could experience an electricity crisis by 2026 and the shortages Could be significant by 2030. At the same time, you may have heard over the last day on Zoomer Radio News, Energy Minister Todd Smith has announced, but with few details, a program that could see volunteer households receive financial incentives for reducing their use of air conditioning on hot summer days. What do you think about that? Would you be willing to use less AC if you were to receive compensation? Numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Back to the report, though, first, and why we might have an electricity crisis in the next few years. Joining us to discuss, Paul Acchione, a senior management consultant with nearly 50 years of experience in the nuclear and fossil power generation industry. Ontario Green Party leader, Mike Schreiner. And Jatin Nathani. Uh, no, a professor at the University of Waterloo and founding executive director of the Waterloo Institute for Sustainable Energy. Hello to you all. Hello there.
2: Hi, Hello. good afternoon.
1: Jatin, I'll begin with you. What is happening that would lead to an electricity crisis? And I'm sure that ramping up the use of electric vehicles has something to do with it.
3: Sure. Uh This development uh, that uh, the minister, of course, has now taken action to try and address, which is uh, an emerging crunch identified by the power system operator, the independent uh, IESO, and we're seeing a constraint emerging around the uh, 25-26 timeframe, and the government's response here is to at least extend the current license of the Pickering Nuclear Station. But beyond that, as we look ahead in terms of the energy demand for the province, uh, we're beginning to see uh, constraints develop, and one answer to that is to address uh, refurbish or essentially rebuild the, uh, the, the nuclear units, uh, and uh, I believe uh, that those two steps uh, go, go a substantial way uh, towards addressing the needs that emerge both from electrification of transport, but also a large increase in um, industrial demand, uh, new manufacturing capacity in Ontario, and a whole host of other factors. So if you look ahead, we will need more electricity and we need to plan for it now. And part of the suggestion or uh, decision made by the government is to look closely again at how we might refurbish these plants at Pickering. And uh, in my view, I think it's a and positive uh, decision.
1: Oh, okay, that is positive. Uh, Paul Acchione, uh, what are your thoughts on this report about a pending electricity crisis and what needs to be done to prevent it from happening?
4: Well, the the report uh, stressed the situation if we don't renew the existing contracts of uh, equipment that's going uh, to the end of their uh, contract life. but the system operator has already indicated that they plan to renew those contracts when they, they expire, as long as they bid reasonable prices. And, and if you look at the, uh, the shortage, over the next 10, 10 uh, to 12 years, it's only about three or 4,000 megawatts. So three or 4,000 megawatts could be added fairly easily, and that was the original plan by the system operator to put in some additional gas plants to tidy them over during that 10-year period before some of the newer technologies, um, renewables with cheaper storage or or, uh, small modular reactors become commercially available in the 2030 period. So, they were looking for about an 8 to 10-year period when they could lean on gas. But recently, there's been a lot of public uh, uh, resentment over the use of more gas. And the government has asked the IESO to look at a different approach. And uh, so now they've got to deal with this gap for the next eight years of about uh, 4,000, 3,000, 4,000 megawatts uh, because uh, they're, not, they're not being allowed to go ahead and, and uh, contract for more gas. So per- personally, I, I, I don't see a short-term problem in using more gas as long as we have a long-term strategy to phase it out eventually. So. Um, you know, we we there's no point shooting yourself in the foot um, uh, because we have a short-term problem. I think I think you have to be a little bit realistic with energy policy. Otherwise, you end up with the silly situation they have in Europe right now.
1: Uh, we'll explain more about that in terms of what they're dealing with in Europe. Their reliance on Russian oil, I guess. You're
4: well, yeah. yeah. The, the the Germans, uh, in order to. To keep, stay in power, they made a deal with the Greens in in uh, Germany to shut down their nuclear plants. They've they've shut down twelve already, and they've got three more to go. Uh, and And they started burning more gas with the Russians. And uh, now now the Russian gas is not available. The nukes are down, and they've got nothing. So now they're scrambling like 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 mad chickens with their heads cut off, trying to figure out how we're going to keep from freezing to death this winter. I mean. Uh, you know, we do stupid things to ourselves. You
1: know? <laughs> right. Well, no, that's, and that is case in point, I guess, where we could be if uh, the problems are not resolved over the next four and then the next eight years. Yeah, Ontario Green is not, Party. It's
4: not that large, right? Pardon? It's not that large if we deal with it
1: sensibly. Okay. Uh, Green Party leader, Mike Schreiner, what is your take on the report, uh, the findings and uh, what you see as the solution?
2: Well, Jane, first of all, I just want to say that uh, some of this is brought on by the Ford government's own policies. Uh, when they were first elected in 2018, they canceled 758 renewable energy projects, and they canceled uh, most of the province's uh, energy efficiency programs. And we know that the lowest cost solution to our energy needs is to use it more efficiently, helping homeowners and businesses save money by saving energy. And the cancellation of the renewable energy contracts um, one cost us a few hundred million dollars, but two took generation offline. I will agree with Paul. i don't I don't think we're in a position of panicking because some of the renewable energy uh, contracts that are coming up for renewal,, uh, the IESO can renew those contracts and I, I think would think we'd be able to do them at substantially lower costs than the original contracts, partly because the price of renewables have uh, dropped dramatically in le- the last decade and partly because, the capital cost has already been, been you know, uh, they've already had a return on investment there. I would disagree with Paul on ramping up gas. I mean, we've worked so hard in Ontario to phase out coal. And if we ramp up gas plants, you're looking at about a 300 percent increase in uh, GHG emissions from our electricity system uh, at a time when we're in a climate emergency, at a time when the input costs for gas are very volatile due to what's happening in, in primarily in Ukraine, um, I think we'd be much smarter to um, ramp up uh, renewables. Uh, the price of renewable energy has dropped so dramatically in the last decade that it is a lower cost source of generation now than, than gas is, and even a lower cost than, than
1: nuclear. Paul, what do you say to uh, Mike's well, rebuttal Mike, there?
4: Mike, Mike uh, would have a great idea there if 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 uh, renewables were dependable, but they're not. They're, they're not dependable, and we know that from that experience Texas had back in in February last year, where they killed almost 200 people. You, well,
2: actually, that to, was, Paul, have, Paul, that was a lot of that was the freezing of natural gas. Well, gas hang on, hang so on. Natural
4: gas yes, contributed let me, to let that me, as let well. Me finish the reason they had so much gas was because the renewables were expected to disappear during a winter storm. And then what happened was the, the cold was so high, the gas system couldn't keep up with both the extra heating demand and the electricity demand, and the system collapsed. So so the when you're building a, a, an electrical system, you have to make sure that whatever you put on the system is reliable in severe weather events. So... You can put in renewables, as Mike suggests. That's not a problem. The problem is that to make them reliable, you need a lot of storage. And storage is expensive. It's two to three times the cost of the actual generation. So these prices that everybody quotes, including the RBC report, about uh, levelized cost of electricity being the lowest, which is true, that's the cost of the electricity coming out of the power plant but it doesn't include all of the other integration costs that are needed to make it reliable, like storage. When you total up the total costs, adding renewables is more expensive than other choices. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we should keep the gas up forever. I'm talking about the next eight years. After that, we're going to start unwinding that gas again. So, so it's a short-term fix to handle a short-term problem. We're all not. Right.
1: We're not proposing burning gas forever. All right. If you're just joining us, uh, we are talking about a report which suggests that we might have an electricity crisis in Ontario by 2026 or later, perhaps by 2030. Paul Acchione is with us an expert in the nuclear and fossil power generation industry. Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner is on the line, as well as Jatin Nathwani at the University of Waterloo. Let's uh, speak specifically to uh, individual homeowners, car owners in this province in terms of having enough electricity to run your air conditioning, uh, to to run what you need in your home, and if you're thinking about buying a hybrid vehicle or an electric vehicle. A lot of people, when you have these conversations around the dinner table, Jatine, when you have friends over or family over, people are concerned about buying electric because they're worried about being able to find sources to fuel their vehicles. You simply don't see them around right now. Uh, What needs to be done for this to become a societal change where people en masse could uh, fuel their vehicles with electricity?
3: I, I i agree with you and and let me make one or two points uh uh first that it's absolutely crucial that ontario has more than adequate supply of electricity and i often call, say planning for plenty should be the basis for ensuring security of supply because you never want to go anywhere close to where the germans are today for example right uh to, to ensure a power system that is both robust Reliable and resilient to any future shocks, because you cannot predict the future. So you do need to plan for it on a, in, in a on a on a base that has a diverse supply base. If I can build on a couple of points that Paul and Mike have made, but emphasise the following: uh, I don't think we should ever slither back down the gas path. Uh, we took a, made a lot of effort here in Ontario to sh- to shut down coal plants our electricity system is a low carbon energy system and what we don't want to do is go back up the, the gas gas uh, firing up more gas power plants so I think and what the Germans have learned it and it is going to be a very problematic uh, resource so that's one thing you don't want to do and, and it makes the question of meeting your climate targets even more difficult number two What you really need to look at is this emerging demand uh, around electrification of, of mobility or transport. That's real. It's emerging. And you need to provide a degree of confidence to to the consumers and, and, and people in Ontario that making a decision to buy an EV is a good decision, that the power supply will be there,
0: mm-hmm. and
3: that you don't need to worry about it. So if you start conflicting messages like don't turn on your air conditioning unit, but go out and buy an electric vehicle, right? well, people will get confused and say, I, I, I don't get it. So I think we need to be very clear that... Uh, we have a robust and solid basis for supply. There is a short-term issue that can be handled by extension of contracts and a few other methods, perhaps even extending the, the current license for the Pickering nuclear generating station, which I think is appropriate. But what we really need to do is look into the next 10 to 15-year time frame, and that's where the refurbishment decision, in my view, is, is part of a solid base that then is complemented by wind and solar and efficiency measures that all work in, 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 in sync, as it were. So we don't need to set up what I call false juxtaposition about wind and solar versus nuclear or energy efficiency versus wind and solar and so on. What we need is to plan for plenty and be very effective in, in, in terms of making sure that the system we have is cost-effective, reliable, and resilient. That's
1: okay, I do want to do go it. I do want to go to the phones. Our Zoomer radio listeners would like to get in on the conversation and the question that I asked off the top of the show about if you were to receive a financial incentive would you turn your air conditioning down on hot summer days. It's an idea that was floated yesterday by the energy minister and Ron in Guelph has a comment about that. Ron, go ahead.
5: Thanks for taking my call. Well, uh, I think I'm already
1: saving energy, but uh,
5: they haven't given a definition of what do they call turning down the thermostat or turning I, I exactly,
1: the exactly.
5: Um, I already keep mine. Maybe I'm just cheap. I don't know. In the summertime, um, my uh, air conditioning is set for probably either 22 or 23 degrees, which I think is somewhere in the 70s. So, um, so I'm already being conscious of the, um, using more than I need. The other point um, that that Paul is making is correct about the, um, um, and it's been made many times. My friend reminds me of this. Well, I said, "Well, what about uh, we need to be able to start?" He says, "Well, Australia right now, and maybe Mike knows something about this. Australia has huge storage storage banks for power to try and hang on to the um, the solar and the wind energy because as it stands right now." Uh, we don't have that capacity in Ontario to be able to store the electricity. Okay,
1: Ron. In the interest of time, I'm just I'm going to let you go and go over to Mike Schreiner uh, because Mike, you were commenting yesterday about this new provincial program of which this financial incentive for lowering your AC is a part. You say it is woefully inadequate. Explain why. I mean, the,
2: the Premier Ford canceled. Uh, most of the energy efficiency programs when he first took office in 2018 and then put the axe to most of the rest of them in 2019. And this doesn't make up for what the government cut when it came to helping people with energy efficiency. So, you know, the program they announced yesterday is a step in the right direction, and I, and I certainly support any movement forward with energy efficiency programs. But what we can really help people save money by saving energy is providing incentives, um, rebates and zero-interest loans for homeowners and businesses to retrofit their homes and their appliances to make them more energy efficient. We know that is the lowest cost solution, and it will take pressure off of our grid. And I would say the one thing we're lucky here in Ontario is, is we have a pretty diverse grid. So Bruce and Darlington nuclear stations are being rebuilt, and Greens acknowledge that that nuclear power will be a part of Ontario's electricity mix for decades. We have good hydro water power in Ontario. We could expand the amount of water power we have in Ontario, including significant amount of storage through our water power and build out renewables. that um, would have become very low cost and overcome uh, this potential deficit we may be
1: facing. Paul Acioni, final comment to you before we wrap up the segment. Well,
4: uh, energy efficiency is always a good idea. Um, deep, deep retrofits on the homes, though, are very expensive, and most people are not going to pay you know, fifty or $100,000 to replace all their windows, doors, and put in insulation all over their walls. So we can forget about these predictions of 80% reduction in energy in a house with deep retrofits. It's just too expensive. People can't afford it. But, but energy efficiency for appliances and things like that, Absolutely. And uh, as I said, let, let, let's be reasonable in our plans going forward. If we need to use and lean on our gas plants for seven or eight years, it's not the end of the world as long as we have a long-term plan to get back to where we want to be, which is basically a net zero system in the long term.
1: Well, I appreciate all three of you and your layman's uh, examples, uh, putting into layman's terms uh, what is happening with our electricity system and how best to go forward. Thank you all for your time.
4: Thank you. Have a nice day. Thank you. Have a good day.
1: Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner there, as well as Paul Acchione, senior management consultant with nearly 50 years of experience in the nuclear and fossil power generation industry, and Jatin Nathwani, professor at the University of Waterloo and founding executive director of the Waterloo Institute for Sustainable Energy. It is Jane for Libby. She is back tomorrow and coming up next, the markets have been performing so poorly, some can Canadians are looking to cash out their investments. Is that a good idea? We will discuss next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: Amid recent market volatility that's been going on for months now, a new survey indicates about a quarter of Canadians are losing confidence in the stock markets and are looking to cash out their investments. The frustration is understandable, but is this a good idea? Joining us to offer expert opinion, Romana King, Canada's Senior Finance Editor with Personal Finance Comparison website Finder, which conducted the study, and and Darren Farwell, Senior Wealth Advisor and Portfolio Manager at Scotia Wealth Management. Welcome to you both.
6: Hello. Good
7: to be
1: here. Romana, tell us more about the findings.
7: Well, we wanted to try and get a better understanding of how Canadians felt. With sort of restrictions on the pandemic easing, um, the economy stalling a little bit because of interest rates and, and high rates of inflation, and of course we know that when there's market uncertainty, we know that you know emotions can creep back in. And sure enough, we found in the Finder survey that people did have a lot of market uncertainty and, and a lot less confidence than, than um, in prior years, with the particularly with the stock market, in particular. Uh, baby boomers had the least amount of confidence that the stock market would, you know, meet or exceed their investment returns in 2022.
1: Romana, so when we look at uh, the people who are saying they want to cash out their investments, uh, what is their income situation like? And is there a generational divide? So do boomers feel differently than millennials and even younger people?
7: Yes, I mean we definitely saw a generational divide, and I think that's that's not a, a something that's surprising. The younger generation is far more confident. I believe forty percent thought that the uh, stock market would meet or exceed their expectations this year, compared to thirteen percent of baby boomers. So there's a big variance there, and a lot of times we look at the income, and and you know people say, you know, if, if someone's only making fourteen thousand, how much could they have per year? How much could they have in the stock market? Well. Quite honestly, a lot of those people are, are already retired. They're the ones that aren't earning. They're right. relying on their investments to have an income, uh, along with government uh, programs, wow. to actually you know pay for their living expenses. And so those are the individuals that are thinking, hey, I need to reconsider how I've got my money invested in the market. I need to shore up any losses that I might have. And and part of the difficulty with that is when you have one in four you know, investors and Canadians saying, you know, I'm going to cash out on the market this year because I'm worried about where the market is going. We want to sort of ask them, hey, if you're going to do that, if you're going to take that, that uh, step, have you actually looked in and considered what that would mean by crystallizing those losses? And is that the best you know, action to take in a bear market?
1: I just wondered if you were surprised by younger people being more optimistic about the markets in the long run versus older people, because those of us who've been around a while, Romana, we know that the markets do go up and down over time, whereas younger adults have not had that personal experience.
7: That's actually a great insight. I agree with you. We do know. But I think, you know, knowing and feeling are two different things. (laughs) Uh I might know that the market's going to go back up at some point in the future, but the feeling of having, you know, a 30% drop in my investment portfolio doesn't feel good. And so, although I might understand intuitively or might understand that the market will go back up, I'm a little bit more uncertain. Also, older people have a shorter timeline, you know. Yes, we know that in the future, but the future to a 25-year-old and the future to a 45-year-old is vastly different. (laughs) So that 25-year-old has a much longer time frame in which to be confident, whereas the 45-year-old is looking at it saying, hey, I was thinking of retiring early at 55. Can I do that? if my investments are down 20, 30% at this point.
1: Right. And if you have a question like that, or you would like to offer your thoughts about the market and what you're doing at this time of your life, as the markets are in bear territory, we'd love to hear from you. 416-360-0740 or one 744 740 Darren, I'll go over to you now. Is it a good idea for anyone of uh, in certain situations to think about cashing out investments?
6: Well, look... All situations are different, so we need to be thinking about what a person 's specific circumstances are but it there 's a lot of reasons why and for, for for best outcomes it it may not make sense to sell when things are down. I mean the number one mistake in investing is in fact selling good quality stuff at a bad time but but Romana made a very good point, and there 's a difference between understanding that point it 's very you know it 's a technical point, and but there's the emotional side, and the emotional side is what gets overwhelming. So what you, what's good to have in a circumstance like that is another person to speak with about it, mm-hmm. because then you can talk about some of the other issues that aren't so emotional. You know, if you bought something at sixty dollars and it's a hundred dollars, and you want to sell it now, that's a forty dollar gain. And that means, you know, you're going to pay something like $10 in tax. So the stock has to go down that much before you're even even. And then you have to make the decision about when to get back in. So my answer to your question is, is as opposed to sort of selling at a bad time, it's more important to have your planning in place so you never need to do that and have someone to sort of talk to uh, and, and talk you out of making that number one investment mistake.
1: So, Darren, I think we have a lot of people now as the interest rate continues to go up, uh, an interest rate on a personal line of credit balance is much higher, obviously, than it was a year ago. So perhaps people in that situation would think, well, I'll, I'll put, uh, I don't mind putting a little bit more on my line of credit versus cashing in my TFSAs. But now people may be going, which is the better scenario if uh, if I need some extra money for a home renovation or just to, to live?
6: Yeah, and all of that speaks to a little less about investment and a lot more about planning. Because on the planning side, you, what you what we recommend is what's called the three bucket approach. You have this one bucket, which is risk off assets. Those are assets that have nothing to do with the stock market, really very little to do with interest rates. That's money that you're going to need in the next three to five years. And that money should already be there and available for you. So you don't have to worry about taking money from those income generating investments or long-term growth investments. So that's about planning. But let's say you are in a pinch, you know, you've done the planning, but you know, things can still go wrong. If you're in a pinch, that's where you have to look at your individual circumstances, look at the different tax consequences and costs and make a decision about which is the best for you. And to do that, It's nice to have a professional team to work with, an accountant, an advisor of some sort, so you can sort through those issues.
1: So, Darren, what are you telling your more mature customers? And it's the same audience as we have here on Zoomer Radio. It's a boomer audience, a Zoomer audience, 45 plus. uh, As, you know, for the most part, markets are going down, with the exception of the last couple of days where we saw some optimism. But overall, what are you suggesting recommending? Are you moving funds around in some people's portfolios, or are you telling them just to hang in until it starts to recover? What is the strategy uh, short-term?
6: By and large, the strategy is if you have good quality investments, weather the storm. We should be prepared for this already, so weather the storm. But having said that, that, that's different from buy and ignore. You know, the, the Professor Emeritus Wharton School of Business has said that the the best indication of risk in the stock market is where you are in the investment cycle. Early in the investment cycle there's a lot less risk in stocks. As you move through the investment cycle, the risk in stocks gets higher, so you have to make shifts in the portfolio. It's never really a sell all or you know hold all. It's making little shifts with a portion of your portfolio. As we get later in the investment cycle, which we now are, it does make sense to make some shifts from the portfolio from riskier assets to less risky assets. For example, GIC rates, all of a sudden attractive. I remember two years ago, GIC rates were about 1%. No one in the world wanted one. Now you look at GICs, they're 4.5%. look kind of attractive all of a sudden. So making some shifts from maybe companies with a lot of leverage. A lot of leverage means they're at risk as interest rates go higher. You might want to shift from those riskier assets to some less risky assets like GICs as a result of rates going up.
1: If you're joining us now, it's Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, and that is Darren Farwell, Senior Wealth Advisor and Portfolio Manager at Scotia Wealth Management. Romana King is also with us. She is a Canada senior finance editor with Personal Finance Comparison website website finder, which conducted the study suggesting that a quarter of Canadians are considering selling their investments, cashing out. Uh, Tell us, uh, Ramana, in terms of the older investors that you spoke with, they're looking to make retirement withdrawals. What is their perspective? What are uh, Canadians, older Canadians' perspective on this?
7: Unfortunately, what we're finding is that most Canadians, it it doesn't matter the demographic um, that they're in, they're looking at higher living costs, and that impacts people that are are no longer earning. So typically retirees, much harder. If you're no longer earning and your costs of living go up, then you have to find a way in your budget to absorb those expenses. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately, that often means either cutting expenses or cutting or taking more money out of your investments to actually pay for that, those extra costs. And so a lot of uh, individuals that, you know, that we surveyed, there was a, a mix of, of reasons, but we knew, do know that, you know, one third of Canadians actually took on loans in 2022 just to pay for additional living costs. Mm. A portion of those would have been, uh, you know, in the seniors and the retirees category. And, and then there was also middle-income Canadians, people that have still earnings, But having a higher cost, so we do know that higher costs are a significant reason for cashing out. Uh, We do know that fear—the fear of you know too much loss—is also a fear of cashing out. And and you know retirees are definitely in that bucket. I think that Darren's uh, sage advice was bang on. I mean, I think that in the end, uh, motivated by emotions, we can make decisions that are not best for us now and hurt us dramatically in the future. So, if anyone is thinking of cashing out, if the you know one in four Canadians are thinking of cashing out their their investment portfolio, the best thing to do is to to ask for a second, a sober second look. Can you please take a look at my plan here and say, is this the best decision for me? I do think that there are sound reasons for doing this. Tax loss harvesting. If I have a gain somewhere in my portfolio and I know I have a loss, but I need some extra money to absorb those expenses. Selling that loss and taking that loss and and applying it towards my gains when it comes to tax time could actually be a good strategy. But that means you have to sit down and actually look at your portfolio and understand why you're making those those uh, cashing out decisions.
1: Interesting. Uh Darren in these troubled times, these challenging economic times, uh, what do you advise uh your retirees uh and in in terms of living in the way that they thought they were going to live when they decided to cut their income back a bit? Uh is it still a good idea to go on vacation for instance, to buy the new car when you need to? Should you continue to try to live normally but within your budget during these times when, you know, your overall portfolio continues to decline? Uh, I've
6: had a number of people say to me, you know, Darren made this long-term plan, but now the stock market's down. Because the stock market's down, do I need to change my lifestyle expenses? Well, a good plan incorporates the fact that the market's going to go up and down through your whole life expectancy. So the fact that the market is down should not have an impact on your regular planned lifestyle expenses. Your plan should incorporate that. However, make a good point about what if there's an extra expense? What about maybe these these expenses you hadn't thought about in doing your planning and they come up? Is this year a good year to take extra money out of your portfolio. I would say likely not. Very often what I suggest is a time to do those extra things or things that were above what was in the plan is really when markets are good. Because then you can take a little money out of the portfolio without having the same kind of impact as selling good quality stuff when the prices are low. So an adjustment to the lifestyle is more about you should already have planned for the regular lifestyle expense and markets going up and down shouldn't impact that. Those extra expenses that were maybe unexpected, perhaps if you can defer those until the market's recovered and looking is a little bit better, would be a good idea.
1: Okay, I feel calmer already. Thank you both so much for your time.
6: You're welcome. It's nice to be here.
1: Thank you, Jane. Bye, Romana. Darren Farwell is Senior Wealth Advisor and Portfolio Manager at Scotia Wealth Management. And Romana King is with the personal finance comparison website Finder, which conducted the study, which prompted our conversation today on cashing out your investments. As we move along here on Fight Back today and in our final segment, which is coming up, is Ukraine now winning the war against Vladimir Putin's Russian forces. We will discuss with our expert panelists next.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown.
1: Libya is observing Yom Kippur. She will be back tomorrow. You've heard the reports on Zuma Radio News. Ukrainian forces are pushing back and recapturing areas of eastern and southern Ukraine that have been annexed by Russia. What does this mean? And can Ukraine officially reclaim these areas of their own country? Joining us to discuss the latest developments in the seven and a half month old war, Dr. Dr. Lucan Wei, professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, and Peter Storin, president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, Toronto branch. Hello, Peter. Hello, Dr. Wei. Good afternoon. Uh, Dr. Wei, help us understand what is happening in Ukraine right now and the pivoting in what's been going on over the last week or so in terms of gains being made by Ukraine. Well, I think
8: you're in the midst of a what looks to be a very successful counteroffensive by the Ukrainian army. Um a couple of weeks ago they they were successful in retaking almost the entire province of Kharkiv, which had been taken over by Russia, and now they are in the process of retaking parts of Donetsk province and most uh surprisingly and importantly, um Kherson province, which was Kherson has a huge importance in in the invasion. It was the only regional center that was captured after February 2022. And so this the prospect of retaking Kherson in the south by the Ukrainian army is of enormous, both symbolic and strategic importance.
1: And, and when you talk about the symbolism of what's going on, you have Vladimir Putin and the Russian parliament approving the annexation of these four areas of Ukraine. And yet in parts of these areas, you have Ukraine back in control and having liberated those areas. So how, how much weight is there now in this annexation by Russia?
8: Yeah. I mean, it looks like it's a paper annexation. I mean, you know, it's quite stunning the kind of, how ridiculous it looks that at the same time the Russian parliament is approving this annexation, Ukraine is just retaking the territory and just proving how false uh, the claim is of Russian control. I mean, this is, I mean, I don't know, I have no idea why Putin decided he needed to sort of formalize the so-called annexation, but he certainly is, uh, looks rather stupid, um, at least to the international environment right now.
1: Well, right. And Peter, I mean, in terms of uh, Putin and how he is reflected around the world, stupid is a good way of of, uh, characterizing what's going on. What is happening? What dynamic is happening within Russia? We do see lots of young men trying to get out of Russia and trying to get out of going to Ukraine to fight.
9: Absolutely. Um, The numbers uh, yesterday range anywhere from 300,000 to 700,000 in one report. Uh, so uh, that's many times more than the amount of uh, young men they've been actually been able to mobilize. And in fact, uh, reading an economic report this morning, um, that it, it will be devastating for the Russian economy if that many young men continue to leave and leave their jobs. Uh, it's something that Russia won't be able to soon recover from. So uh, the way we see it is, is Russia is on a trajectory to basically. Uh, collapse in in many areas, not just militarily, economically. And frankly, it's kind of scary. Initially, Putin and his henchmen, um, as evil as they have been and continue to be, at least some of it made logical sense. Right now, there's very little other than, you know, we're going to stand till the very end, till the bitter end, until there's no one left. But uh, Ukraine will certainly not stand for For their continued aggression.
1: Peter, what are your thoughts from the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress perspective on how the West is helping to win this war? I mean, we know the United States has bolstered the Ukrainian forces substantially, financially and militarily.
9: Oh, absolutely. No, we're uh, we're obviously very happy. Uh, It's been a long time coming. I mean, you know, we can look back and say, well, if these weapons were supplied back in March, Um, maybe tens of thousands of lives could have been saved. Uh, But that being said, uh, the U.S., um, the West European countries, the East European countries in particular, the Baltic countries, Estonia, Lithuania, um, Latvia, um, Poland, uh, the Czechia, now Slovakia, these countries have really, really stepped up. And it's making all the difference because Ukraine has more than enough people to defend itself. Uh, it's a country of 40 million people. What it didn't have is enough armaments against uh, what Russia has been building for decades.
8: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, let's go back to Dr. Lukin Wei. Um, the dynamic that is playing out right now with the young men of Russia wanting to leave, wanting no part of this conscription that Vladimir Putin is trying to orchestrate. How likely is a revolution in in Russia where there is a backlash and where it might be the end of the Russian Empire as we know it?
8: Um, unfortunately, I don't think that the prospects for revolution are high. I mean, um I mean, in a sense, the the migration of young Russians is a mixed blessing. On the one hand, I think it, um, it you know means that these people aren't fighting in Ukraine and that helps Ukraine. On the other hand, it means that all the people who hate Putin are dissatisfied with the situation or are leaving. Um, in a sense, um, what they should really be doing is working to overthrow the Putin regime. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I think you know, there's really I think the prospects for sort of the overthrow of Putin are quite remote. And unfortunately, I mean, there has there have been, um, kind of divisions and criticism, uh, certainly, uh, within Russia about the losses, the losses of territory, but they've all been from the far right. In other words, they've been by people who are, who are basically supporting more extreme measures, such as Razman K- Kadyrov, who, um, who, who's the head of the, of Chechnya, the sort of, uh, Putin-style official in Chechnya and in southern Russia, um, He was calling for the use of nuclear weapons and the like. So so the people that are are sort of openly opposing Putin are the people you probably would not
1: want power. And if they came to power, it would make the situation even worse. Oh, I see. Uh, Peter, what are your thoughts on that?
9: Actually, I think that's a great commentary by the professor. We uh, firmly believe that, you know, my grandfather had this saying, he says, we were uh, really happy way back when, when Lenin passed away. Then came Stalin.
3: Mm. So.
9: You know, unfortunately, Russia has this history of, you know, maybe one step forward, but always two steps back. And uh, and even even some of the democratic forces, so-called democratic liberal forces in Russia, um, you can't get a firm statement on where, where they believe whether or not Crimea should be part of Ukraine, uh, whether or not some of these territories um, that, that Russia is attacking actually belong to Ukraine. Uh, from a historical and ethnic point of view over history. So it is a real challenge. Whether or not there's going to be a revolution right now, frankly, most Ukrainians don't care. They just want Russia out of Ukraine and allowing Ukraine to be part of the Western world the way it's always wanted to be.
1: This is Zuma Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby, that is Peter Sturin, President of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress Toronto branch. Dr. Luke Wei is with us. He is a professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. If you would like to add your voice to the conversation, certainly we have become very aware of Ukraine, its geography, uh, the fight uh, on its behalf globally to get Russia out. Numbers to call are 416, Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Professor, based on the developments in in recent days and weeks, and what appears to be the turning tide in this war, initially there were thoughts that this war could go on for years. Uh, how are you viewing uh, the longevity of this war at this point?
8: I'm, I'm, I'm still, sort of I still think that it will go on for a very long time. For the simple reason that there's no indication, on the one hand, that Putin is giving up any of his, you know, broader aims of taking control of Ukraine and expanding Russian territory. On the other hand, you know, Ukraine is simply never going to give up. You know, they are never, despite calls by people like Elon Musk, um, to, burn, you know, for. Uh, Ukraine to trade territory in exchange for so-called peace. I mean, Ukraine, it'll just never,
5: it'll never happen.
8: Mm -hmm. So, you know, until one or the other, you know, until basically, I mean, I think, you know, in all likelihood, the war is going to go on as long as sort of Putin is in power. And Putin uh, looks quite secure in his position. So, you know, um, I think that, you know, the prospects for ending the war soon are, are, are quite dim.
1: So you still feel it could be a matter of years? yep um, I mean I, I think the issue
8: is what, what the West has to do and um, is given an, give Ukraine enough weapons and enough support to push Russia out of Ukraine that is the only way to sort of even you know to end any kind of the sort of open hostilities that will that is what's going to end the war ultimately.
1: Peter, how big of a concern is the nuclear threat? Uh, yesterday morning, it was being widely reported, although with very cautious language around this train that was heading to the Ukraine front, uh, the front line, uh, potentially to launch some sort of nuclear weaponry attack.
9: Well, certainly, it's uh, it's obviously a concern. Uh, today in KU, they're making announcements of... Uh, properly preparing fallout shelters, bomb shelters in the capital, uh, because we know it it can happen. Uh, We know that if Putin, his government, Russian generals, if they had the opportunity to wipe out Ukraine and take it over tomorrow, they would do it in a heartbeat, no matter how many millions of lives would be lost. That being said, we're also very confident that they're not all completely irrational even when a president of a country gives a command to launch a missile it it has to go down a chain of command now if they're all suicidal and they all want the world to end tomorrow well Mm -hmm. then maybe a nuclear strike can happen but i don't really believe that that then most sane individuals would would operate that way and frankly we're seeing uh Many former U.S. generals come out and make the, making those statements. If they did, the U.S. is making very clear uh, statements towards Russia. You do that, and it's a whole different ball game. which means U.S. and NATO would have to take very firm action. What that is, we're not sure, but clearly there would be some response from NATO.
1: Dr. Wei, will calmer heads prevail even in Russia uh, about a nuclear conflict?
8: Um, I have no idea. I think there's reason to be concerned, but certainly um, is absolutely correct that there's no rational um, reason for the use of nuclear weapons. I mean, if they use nuclear weapons, radiation would likely blow into Russia itself. <laughs> um, you know, it you know, immediately, you know, quite close, right on the border, obviously. So um, it would reverberate negatively to Russia. The other thing to, to to realize is that Russia has a lot to lose. You know, if it violates sort of well-established norm of over 70 years of not using nuclear weapons, I, I strongly suspect that China and India, who have so far been providing, you know, uh, diplomatic and other types of assistance to Russia, would have to break from Russia. So they would become even more isolated. And certainly um, the push to provide all forms of conven- conventional assistance to Ukraine would amp up. And so I think, uh, you know, my guess is that, you know, nuclear weapons, for sure, you know, they, they provide the most utility sort of in, in their threat, but in their actual use, it would really reverberate strongly against uh, the Putin regime. Uh, but again, you know, I have no idea what's going on in the head of Putin and his um, and general. so you know, they've been shown—it was also considered irrational for them to invade uh, Ukraine as a whole back in February, right, but he right. clearly did that.
1: Yeah, who knows, right? Um, And, you know, as we wrap up our time here, I'd like to turn to what Canada has done in terms of, I mean, it's been quiet lately in terms of financial relief, uh, military assistance, sanctions, and so on. Peter, what are your thoughts about Canada's involvement and what else we should be doing in this country?
9: Well, it's been, uh, to put it politely, muted uh, at best. There, there has been support, and, and we're very thankful for it. Uh, but we know uh, from comments from General Hillier and other former commanders uh, in the Canadian military that there was a lot more and a lot more that Canada could do, both on the military front and and, and direct support uh, to the front lines. Uh, but that being said, Canada has stepped up, um, especially with uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the allowing of. Uh, many uh, people fleeing the war to come to Canada on special visas.
8: Mm-hmm. No
9: they're not uh, refugees so they don't get much financial support but they are allowed to come and frankly we're seeing now we have volunteers at the airport still every day greeting families coming and a lot of these people have lost their homes, have lost uh, you know the villages that they're from and they've made their way to Canada and they're allowed to be here for three years on a work visa. So that's been very helpful. Uh, the latest numbers is over 55,000 Ukrainians have made their way to Canada. Some have gone back, and, and many will go back. Right. When the war is over, they all say they much rather be there than here. But there will be those that will stay. So we think there'll be a valuable addition uh, to Canada because they are hardworking people that just want a better life.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so, Peter, are, can we feel confident knowing that the people that are arriving, that are coming into Pearson Airport and the other airports across the country every day from Ukraine, that they are being housed in some way? They're being taken care of?
9: Well, that's, that's a whole other issue. Right. Uh, we, uh, you know, we, we had uh, two young individuals in our, in our home that stayed for six months. They finally found themselves an apartment It took them that long to find uh, an apartment that they could actually afford. Uh, so we have had tremendous help from the community in general. not just the Ukrainian community, but communities in Canada have stepped up and helped people out. Um, the government has done steps now. There are temporary lodging that is available uh, in in Mississauga and thereabouts where there's hotel rooms, but that's two weeks. so so the majority that come have somewhere to stay have mm-hmm. family friends, and they can they can manage. But there are those. There's always that five or ten percent that actually just come to Canada because they just couldn't support themselves anymore in Europe. Very right. expensive. There's very few jobs available in Europe because the the the, the demand uh, with millions of of refugees it, it makes things very challenging. So they're just wanting to come to Canada. A lot of them actually have told us they they just want to come here just to make a few dollars and hopefully go back home when it's all over so they can go con- back and continue to support their families.
1: Right, and if you're interested in helping out, you can go to the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress website. Dr. Way, just, just a minute left here. What are your thoughts on Canada's assistance to date and what more we could be doing? Yeah, no, I, I,
8: I mean, I think uh, you know, it's absolutely right that you know, the main form of assistance has been sort of helping people come here. I mean, I also think it's, it's really important, though, at the same time, that we provide support to people who want to stay in Ukraine and fight the Russians. Um, I know that sort of having been involved with the university in, in terms of people coming here, that a lot of Ukrainians don't want to come to Canada, uh, that they want to stay in Ukraine as a result of set up a sort of non-resident fellowship that allows that, you know, helps out Ukrainians who want to, you know, do research in, in Ukraine and, right. and join the armed forces, uh, to fight Russian aggression. So I think we need to think both about Um, obviously military assistance and supporting refugees coming here, but also providing some aid to Ukrainians who really want to stay in Ukraine.
1: We will leave it there for now. The conversation continues. Uh, I appreciate both of you and your time. Thank you.
9: Thank Thank you. you very much, Jane.
1: Dr. Luke Inway is a professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, and Peter Sturin is president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress Toronto branch. Libby is back tomorrow. The number one's at one coming up next, and Bob Komsik in the news before that.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio.